Welcome to the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, and I edit films and scripted TV shows in Hollywood. I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program to help aspiring editors start or advance their careers in post-production. I don't have any training in coaching or some fancy degree in psychology. I'm just a guy who is relentless in pursuing his goals and wants to help people do the same. But I didn't achieve happiness and success in my career alone. Throughout the years, I've come across some amazing people that have offered valuable advice and guidance. That's why I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program, to help people navigate the path to achieving their career goals. I've been in your shoes and gone through the same struggles. The challenges and fears on this journey are real. And I want to tell you, it is possible. We made it to 2021, and here we are, the first episode of the year, episode 13 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Thanks for being here, thanks for listening, and thanks for all your support uh, of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program. It's still going, we're still going strong, uh, and, and we still have some amazing guests on this show. We're kicking things off right this year with an amazing episode today. Editor Harry Ewan is here. And he has a lot of great things to say. I'm excited for you to hear from him uh, because uh, it's a lot of stuff that I agree with, uh, a lot of stuff I talk about here on this podcast and on the website. So very happy to have Harry Yoon on the show today. Before I get to my guest, though, I want to remind you to join the Hollywood Editing Mentor community uh, by visiting hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. As a member, you'll have access to me via a private Facebook group where I'll be hosting virtual office hours, interviews with post-production professionals, and other exclusive live content. You'll also be able to submit questions for guests of this podcast and have your name mentioned on the show. This is a great platform to gain information and knowledge and also to network and meet new people. So join now by visiting hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. All right, so my guest today is editor Harry Yoon, whose recent credits include A24's Minari, winner of the Domestic Grand Jury Prize and Audience Awards at Sundance 2020, and the HBO series Euphoria. His feature editing credits include Detroit, The Best of Enemies, and additional editing credits for First Man, and the A24 drama The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I'm telling you guys, this is a good one. It's a great way to start off this new year. So check it out. You're going to want to listen to this one twice. Here we go with episode 13 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor podcast with editor Harry Yoon. Very happy to have here editor Harry Yoon on the Hollywood Editing Mentor podcast. Uh, Harry, it's great to meet you. How are you doing? Great. It's good to be here. I'm very much looking forward to talking with you, Joaquin. Harry, I mean, you've worked on some uh, amazing projects, have a lengthy career, um, uh, I want to know all about your story, uh, how you got into editing, uh, and also just simply where are you from, how it all started for you, uh, just so people uh, can get to know you a little bit more. So I, I was born in Korea, and I moved to the States when I was five and grew up in the Bay Area. Um, and I grew up loving movies, but uh, I never thought that it was possible to actually do it as a career. Uh, and so when I went to college back on the East Coast at a small school, um, it wasn't until later on where I started seriously thinking about um, taking a risk and going into film. But because I was the sort of first son of Korean American immigrants, uh, it was really hard for me to um, take that risk, you know, uh, just trying to honor the sacrifices that my parents made in coming here and like working so hard at small businesses all their lives uh, to do something as risky as film took a while. And so, uh, Pretty much through my 20s, I um, vacillated between committing to film and doing other things that would 
maybe give me some more financial stability before pulling the trigger. Uh, until finally, um, uh, after sort of spending, you know, everything from working in technology as a product project manager to actually going to NYU's graduate directing program in my late twenties and then taking a leave of absence, I finally at the, or at the ripe age of 30, um, said, you know what? It's now or never. Um, if I don't give this a, a real try, then I'll regret it. And so I sold everything I had and uh, left my job in technology and, um, and drove down to L.A. and started off from the beginning as an intern, as a PA. Uh, and um, and uh, for over the next, you know, 10 years, really kind of tried to get a foothold in the industry, worked my way up the assistant ladder, and then for the last 10 years have been kind of uh, making the transition into full-time editing um, and, um, and feeling really, really blessed by all of the mentors and all of the um, opportunities that I've had uh, to learn under incredible people uh, to get to this place. What pushed you to finally take that risk and pursue a career in film? And more specifically, though, a career in editing? Yeah, I think it was having tried to compromise a little bit and worked in tech for a while and trying to do this thing where, you know, when I left film school, I was like, um, when I took a leave of absence from film school, I was invited up by um, some colleagues of mine to join a startup. And I was like, oh, well, here's a good way for me to compromise and be like, okay, well, if the startup does well, then I'll make a little nest egg of money and I won't feel as guilty, right? And having tried to do that, I realized that um, that sometimes there is no way to hedge your bets. Sometimes you do have to take a big risk um, because you know by the time all is said and done, I was restarting in an industry at the age of 30 when most people were starting at 21. And um, so I had already lost a lot of time trying to hedge my bets. And so part of it was just having tried to have my cake and eat it too, in terms of financial security and going into film, but also like around the time I made my, that decision, this is tell you how old I am is right around the time of like nine 11. And I think, um, you know, just sort of the, the kind of mental space that, that, that put me in was saying like, you know, you can never predict what's going to happen in life and, um, life is short. And so, I think you have to make bold decisions if if you want to pursue your passions. And so it was those two factors that really played into it. Now, that said, I think my choice in doing editing was partly because I really love the process, but also slightly hedging my bets and knowing that I could probably find a job, like a paying job as an editor, faster than I probably could as a writer or as a director or as a producer which I think like you're so sort of self-generating and you have to kind of establish a name and so much of that time you have to do for free, you know, for little to no money. And so it's, I think it's much harder to sort of make a living wage early on in your career. Whereas I, I suspected that because there are a lot of editors and because there's a lot of opportunity for people, you know, to, to sort of come up the apprenticeship system as assistants and things like that. I was like, okay, well, I love this aspect of filmmaking. And um, it's a way to do it where I know that hopefully within one or two years, I could at least 
pay for rent and pay my bills while I'm looking for those opportunities to work on bigger projects and things like that. So uh, in some ways, it was a practical decision as well in the context of a very impractical decision of going into film in general. Absolutely. I mean, talking about those, I mean, at that time, say, where you started to then make your way into editing, I mean, what was your thought process then? What decisions were you making? I mean, did you you just kind of jump into it and said, I'm going to figure this out? Yeah, I I think... um, I think I didn't know anybody here in Los Angeles other than my friends and none of them were in the film industry. And so for me, the priority was to try to find a community right away. And I had been involved with the Asian American film organization up in San Francisco Bay area, uh, which was called NATA at the time. And is now called CAM or center for Asian American media. And so I was like, I needed to find like uh, another sort of, I guess sort of like a filmmaking family and I was comfortable with the Asian American community. And so I got involved with visual communications or VC down here in LA. They have an office in you know, little Tokyo and they've been around forever as pioneers and kind of advocating for Asian American filmmakers. And they have a festival every year. And so I started off just volunteering as a programmer um, to watch features for their annual film festival. And I met some amazing folks like the head programmer, Abe Ferrer and like, um, you know, people that were in, that were adjacent to that organization. And that was kind of my starting community. And then I started to find other communities like um, uh, Film Independent um, through their program Project Involve. And like these kind of initial communities were the, became a sort of an alternate to film school. They were a group of people that I met that kind of became my cohort that as we advanced in the industry um, were so essential, you know, for helping support me emotionally, but also to uh, for me to give opportunities to or hear about opportunities and vice versa. Um, And that's the advice that I give to a lot of folks that are coming here, particularly ones that don't have deep connections already is it's so important if you didn't graduate from USC or UCLA or AFI or, um, or any of the, you know, great programs in the area that you find a cohort of people that will come up with you, that will sort of like go through the, the inevitable sort of roller coaster ride of opportunity and challenges that you're always going to face in an industry that, has so little structure in terms of advancement. Like you need, you know, your your cohort to 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 lean on, but also to hear about gigs and you know to on whose films you're going to work. And thankfully, I found a really really great community pretty early on to 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 start that process. I understand. I mean, it's uh, same thing when I got to LA initially. You know, uh, five years ago, I had no contacts, nothing. And one of the things that I learned was that, or that I wanted was seeking was a community. Yeah. And that's what I, I I found. And I think the post community is great on LA and it helped me a ton. It's so amazing. I mean, like I'm so blown away by first off, like how generous people are with their time and with their knowledge. Uh, I think people who go into editorial, they're kind of service minded to begin with. Like, like I think like they, they, you know, have a desire to help because I feel like being an editor part of who you are is, you know, uh, someone who by, by your talents helps to develop other people's ideas and their gifts and things like that. You are, um, and and I think that that naturally translates into mentorship, into the kind of generosity that kind of like, uh, 
advice economy, that free economy, the gift economy that we find ourselves in. So like organizations like Blue Collar Post Collective and all these like post organizations and assistant editor organizations, the kind of programs that the Editors Guild has and ACE has. And, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome that if you start really delving into it, you can definitely find great advice. And like your podcast, for example, you know, and, you know, people like Zach Arnold and you who sort of under, like approach this life of post-production in a holistic way is to say, like, you can't just focus on the gigs. You have to focus on sustainability and health and, you know, all the skills outside of just what you do on a keyboard that, you know, that, that have to develop as well. And I just love that there's that ecosystem out there. Uh, for post. Um, and we're just so lucky that, that, that that's there and that that's developed. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, and, that's, and I, you know, I'm glad to say that because, you know, when I did get here, when I first got here, I was focused on, you know, finding the gigs, right? Yeah. I mean, that was, I, that's what I, I, I was looking for. And, and that's all I kind of focused on. But then I realized that, you know, I was looking for really a lot of it was emotional support. Yeah. Um, because it was tough. I mean, my, my first year in LA was really difficult. Yeah. Uh, and breaking into scripted was really hard. And I, I was looking for that emotional support. I, I didn't know I did not, I needed that. But then I realized, you know what? That's what I really need to keep me going. Absolutely. Except I, people, I don't know if you're taught this in school or I don't know if anybody teaches this in school, which is like the only way to survive is to develop resiliency because. Like, unlike other career paths where you're like, okay, well, you know, when I graduate from medical school, I'm doing an internship and then I'm doing a fellowship. Like there's these, all these like kind of prescribed stages, right? Like, or when you graduate from law school, you're like, okay, I'm studying for the bar exam and then I'm an associate. And then there's all these things that kind of tell you where you are and how well you're doing. Whereas like the peculiarities of working freelance in a, an industry in which you're changing companies like every six to nine months, like how do you know where you are five years in? You know, like, am I making, you know, is that sort of make or break opportunity right around the corner because of the investment that I've made in my networking and the job that I've done as a PA or as an, in, you know, or as an assistant on these other gigs? Like, is that going to come to flower this year? or three years from now. And so it's just hard to know where you are. Um, the, the anecdote that I always tell is like the year that I got this incredible opportunity to, um, to work as a co-editor on Detroit, which is sort of like breaking into that sort of like super rarefied atmosphere of working on editing on studio movies. Right. Um, that same year before that I edited a pilot, and for uh, for a network, and before that, I was editing a web series, like all in the same year, and like the person that I was didn't change right from job to job, but from an outward standpoint, the status of each job is radically different, right? And so that taught me something really important, which is like you have to kind of find a way to be emotionally centered outside of like what your job title is or what type of project that you are and to have a kind of resiliency and a kind of like self-identity outside of those things. Cause like who knows 
know, and, and after Detroit, who knows if I would have gotten another feature? Maybe, maybe I'm back to something else, right? In terms of how the how the outside world sort of uh, pictures you or judges you. And so I think it's super important to kind of start to develop that kind of emotional intelligence and that emotional health uh, along with your technical skill set, because it's the only way to survive. Um, and I think the people who can't do that, you know, like, you know, that's when you start to drink or like, you, know, like, <laughs> you start to like find other crutches. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Know, like, to, to kind of like help you get through if you don't have that kind of centered emotional stability. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And and it's like, that's why it's important to talk about, you know, health and fitness, yeah, money, you know, finances, everything. Because you said, like I said, it's, it's about surviving. You know, you want to keep going. Because I certainly there was times where I wanted to quit. I mean, I was like, I can't, I, I, I can't do this anymore. Nothing's happening. So I needed to stay on my on my feet and just push through, push through. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think that's so important to to because it's hard to find those outside signifiers that tells you that you're making progress. But because it's so hard to quantify the value of your network, like the the friend of a friend who's going to ask the director that you happen to have worked with on, you know, worth with two years ago, Hey, can you recommend an editor for the feature that I'm about to do? Right. And that could be your big break, but like, how, how will you know that that's happening? You can't quantify that. And so like, and so I, I think the people who I think make it aren't necessarily, you know, out of the gate, the most talented or, you know, the, the, you know, the, the best equipped or the best prepared. I think the people who make it are the people who are, who create the conditions in which they could stick around until luck happens until that big break happens. Uh, and that's tough to do. It is very tough. Very tough. And you said, you know, you don't, no, no one teaches this really. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's just, I think it's, it's a lot about I was having conversations with people, learning from experiences, and again, it goes to the safety of mentorship, which we'll get into, of course. But, you know, speaking, going back then to, to kind of your start, say, in, in working in, in, in film and in, in scripted TV, I mean, how, what, can you take us back to that time where you started then getting kind of some traction, getting some credits? And then, I mean, you work now with, you know, Oscar winning editors and really big projects. I mean, kind of guide us through that, that process um, or, you know, maybe decisions that you made, strategies that you implemented to get to work on those type of projects. Uh, I'd say... It's a long story of, um, I guess, incremental progress and um, laying the seeds of uh, of really networking with like pretty amazing folks. Like even though I can't tell you how many times now where I meet a producer or a director or you know someone who knows a producer or director that I met first when I was a PA or I met first when I was an assistant editor, right? They'll be like, you know, I just did an interview recently with an executive at uh, a studio and they're like, you know, the first time we met, you were a second assistant on Charlotte's web. And it just shows that every job, no matter what your title is, is you're laying the seeds of your future work. You're laying the seeds of future opportunity and I feel like that's kind of the story of my particular path, which is a, a, a kind of traditional path through the ladder of apprenticeship that exists in, um, particularly in studio films, 
uh, I think to a certain extent in, in television as well, but like it, it is sort of come starting off, you know, initially as a PA on certain features um, and then getting a really amazing opportunity through project involved, actually um, the mentorship program at film independent with, which, you know, uh, seeks to um, uh, pair up up and coming filmmakers of all these different uh, stripes uh, that are from underrepresented communities with mentors in Hollywood. So I was super lucky to be paired up with mentor Stephen Mirioni, who's an Oscar winning editor. Um, and uh, he also was from the Bay Area and really just gave me some tremendous advice through that whole process. But I also met um, a woman named Beanie Barnes, who's a super talented writer director. Um, and she, her mentor was Catherine Hardwick. Uh, and Catherine at the end of, towards the end of that program started going into pre-production on Lords of Dogtown, uh, the feature of the skateboarding movie. And uh, Beanie one day said, Hey, Catherine needs uh, another assistant, a director's assistant that knows how to edit because she wants to put together all these like little videos uh, to give actors the sense of like the characters that they're playing and stuff like that. Um, Cause there's all this documentary footage of the original Z boys. Right. So, um, so she asked me to come in and interview for that. And, um, and, uh, and l- I was lucky enough to get that job. And when um, it came time after pre-production to go into production, I asked Catherine if I could be on uh, Nancy Richardson's, editing team and Nancy had come on board earlier on to cut some test footage and pre-production footage and we hit it off and I was so lucky because she's such an amazing teacher I mean she's one of the the main teachers at UCLA you know and um and teaches you know all you know the head of editing and and post-production at UCLA and um and so learned so much from her but that was my first uh union gig so I got into the union on that show as an apprentice editor. And I think that really opened the door to some more financial stability because finally making sort of a union wage. Um, and as well as once you have your first union credit on a feature and then, you know, you're able to be hired by other union features. And so then I was recommended to be a second assistant on Charlotte's web, a night assistant. And so I would like come in at six o'clock and stay till 6am and, um, uh, incidentally, sort of like one of my primary duties was going through all of the pig footage and finding like different alternate head nods for when Wilbur would say certain words. So I would like, <laughs> look, for, like look for like times in which the pig was like looking up and said like, and and it looked like he was saying something like, that's great. So I would like line up all the potential. That's great. Wow. And so like, wow. that's, that's, that was the that's it. <laughs> yeah. So it, was like, it was not sort of like Oscar worthy stuff definitely back then, but, but it was awesome because, you know, it was a chance to work with an incredible team, you know, of directors and editors. And one of the editors I met uh, was Sabrina Plisco because she would stay late and we would get into conversations and she was kind enough to ask me to be her first assistant on Mr. McGuire's Wonder Emporium. And that was sort of like how I progressed is, you know, position by position, job by job, you know, working as an assistant um, up the ladder. And then once I was on McGuire's is when I was starting to nights and weekends um, do a recut on a feature um, for a very talented director named Jennifer Pong, uh, who, uh, called Half-Life and that feature got into Sundance. 
And that started my relationship with Sundance and editing more independent stuff, nights and weekends or during hiatuses, um, as I uh, made a living and paid the bills by assisting on union stuff. And so it, that went, that was for a period of like, you know, five to six years doing that, just going back and forth until um, really it was, I think when I got bumped up as an assistant on the newsroom and people started to see that as, as a very strong editing credit, um, you know, and then that coupled with some of the Sundance features that I'd done, I think started to legitimize me as an editor for other producers that could hire me. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, then I started getting opportunities primarily as an editor from there. I mean, I'm assuming you did some great work, uh, but what else do you think helped uh, propel you in your career? I mean, I certainly had my share of failures. And I think my failures really came from um, letting my ego get in the way of relationship. Uh, and that's both with directors and with people that were, um, you know, uh, and, and other editors that I would work for, right? So like, with directors that I was working with on a feature, for example, like, you know, I might early on argue too strenuously about a particular cut or about a particular direction rather than trying it. And I realized that that even though, even if I'm, even if I may have been right, you know, or maybe even if I still think I'm right, what I wasn't doing was creating an environment in which the director felt free to explore artistically. Right to make mistakes, to be able to trust that um, they could be vulnerable with me and like take risks. And th I think that was an issue because that's, I don't think that that's the kind of collaborator that people want. And I had to learn that the hard way, right? By not being asked to sort of come on to, to, to other features. Um, and as far as people who I worked with, like, you know, if I didn't sort of properly understand that, you know, that I can't think about my job as a stepping stone to something else. I have to really focus and be excellent and be present at the thing that I'm doing, whether I'm getting lunch as a PA or, you know, I'm doing a monotonous task as an assistant. Like, I feel like when you sort of like understand the importance of being present and doing your job excellently, that that speaks really well of you. And that can pay off, maybe not in this job, but it definitely in future jobs. And that kind of attitude that sort of, I mean, what we say when we're hiring people, um, like a PA, for example, is like, there's a certain quality that, um, that, you, that earns you the label of like, you get it, right? And what I think you get it means is that you don't just see it as a job, you get that your performance And the excellence you bring even to menial tasks is a reflection of your character. And people remember character, right? And so if you say like, look, I have a college degree. I went to film school. I don't need to worry about getting lunch right. I think that that's a problem, you know, like, because people are saying like, how can we trust you with something, you know, infinitely more important if you don't show the character to, to care about this menial thing. And I, and that took me a number of failures to understand, you know, to understand that like, it's so important for me to do the job that's in front of me than to worry so much about the job that's ahead of me years down the road. Uh, and so I think those hard won lessons by failing, 
I think taught me some really important principles that contribute to getting rehired, that contribute to getting uh, considered and recommended. Um, you know, after a while, people don't submit resumes blind. There's a certain point when you, when you, and it's fairly early in your career where you get calls because so-and-so recommended you. I heard about you through this person, or I asked, you know, the assistant that wasn't available if they could recommend other assistants and your name came up. You know, every job that I've gotten, including the one I just got, was because someone gave my name to someone else, to the person who was hiring. And that doesn't happen unless you show that quality of getting it. And I think that 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 really came through loud and clear because of my failures (laughs) of having to learn the hard way to, to, to sort of keep that in mind, keep my ego in check and to understand that like, that there is real sort of freedom in, and I think um, in this idea of, of being uh, of service to people. You know, and of being excellent in that service. I mean, this is all great. This is beautiful. It's something that I constantly talk about, and it's conversations that I've had with other successful editors on this podcast. You know, the, this idea of these principles, these concepts uh, leading to success. Uh, you think, though, that this is something that can be taught? I I think that they can be uh, principles that people. Uh, return to when their personal experiences align with them. So like if they don't get a job or if they, or if they get a job, you know, I think it's a great reminder to say, Oh yeah, this is like, this proves the rule. This proves the principle that Joaquin is talking about all the time. Right. Like, and I think it's important that that those principles be laid out, you know, through repetition, through being emphatic about them so that people can say like, oh, this isn't just sort of like a random occurrence. This proves or disproves this principle that that people are talking about all the time. So yeah, in that way, I think it can be taught. But I think like, you know, human relationships are so complex and they're no less complex uh, in the cutting room and especially no less complex in Hollywood. And I think more often than not, we have to learn the hard way, you know, and some of us are wired to be extroverts. Some of us are wired to be introverts. And so people are going to approach it in different ways. Um, but I, 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 but I think, um, and I think everybody has to learn for themselves through these kind of individual experiences, job to job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and, you know, something that conversation that comes up a lot is, um, you know, with say people trying to, to break in or advance in their careers is, is this idea of, uh, well, you know, fear. If you're taking risks, right? And it's, I understand it. I mean, I, I, early in my career, like I had, I, I had that fear of, of, you know, say leaving my hometown, say moving to New York, no job, just going to find, you know, pursue my dreams and same thing with LA. Um, I eventually had to do it, right? Um, how can people get over that fear of committing mistakes or, or, or say, you know, taking risks. I think you just, there's nothing that can get rid of that fear other than experience. I mean, the, the, the analogy that I would use is like, I, I'm, when I used to, when I was training for my first marathon, like years ago, one of the things I realized was like the pain 
of running for a really long time never goes away. (laughs) I know. I know. You know know what I mean? Like, like it's like, it's not like you get so strong and so fit. Like it's never, it, it doesn't hurt anymore. But I think what happens is that when you run, you know, you know, nine miles then 10 miles then 12 miles and 15 miles, et cetera, the pain becomes more familiar and you realize you're not going to die. Right. So like at mile, if you're on a 15 miler and at mile nine, that soreness comes back, you're not like, Oh, I'm not dying. I have to stop. You're like, hello, old friend. I know who you are, you know? And I feel like, and I feel like you can't tell people not to be afraid because it's a natural reaction to uncertainty. But what you can tell people is that fear will not be so scary anymore that you feel like you can't do it or you're going to die, right? Like your reaction to the fear when it happens, which is inevitable, is going to be more seasoned. It's going to be more mature. It's going to be in the context of your experience, right? Because it's not like every time I don't start a job, like even after like 20 years, it's not like, I don't like sit in that chair and be like, and, and think my first thought is, Oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. I hope somebody doesn't find out, you know, like, <laughs> like, like the first time I start a job and I'm just like, you know, especially in these high pressure situations, I always feel that way. Like the first cut that I do, I'm like, Oh man, that's just terrible. You know, like, you know, like everybody feels that way. But I think the people who sustain are the ones that say to themselves, that doesn't mean I should quit. It means just get through it because I've been here before. And they say to that fear, they say to that anxiety, hello, old friend, I know who you are and I'm not going to die. Like you're a familiar experience. Uh, and, I, and I feel like that that's, that's going to be very consistent through your career. Yeah, so you know, I'm a, I'm a runner as well. I did run the oh, cool. LA, LA Marathon uh, earlier this year. So awesome. I, I totally get it. I mean, and it's, I mean, I remember my first one, it was like, wait, you know, when they're training, oh, wait, I'm at mile 10, I'm fine. 11, I'm good. 12, I'm still up, you know, and you're like, you're right. I got, I'm alive. I made it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I think I, I learned a lot about, you know, surviving or, or just kind of getting over that fear. Honestly, a lot from running or, or yes. things like that, experiencing pain and knowing yeah. that, wait, I'm all right. Exactly. You're not going to die. And I didn't die. I didn't die at mile nine when before I ever started training, the idea of running nine miles seemed like totally impossible. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's a great, man. Uh, I, I do want to talk about, uh, you know, mentorship. I, I mean, I know you're a big proponent of that and, 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 and you're a product of mentor, mentorship. Uh, yeah. What has been your experience with it? I mean, obviously you've had a, several mentors. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I've worked with, uh, you know, Oscar winning editors and how do you then now mentor, say your assistants or people trying to, say, break into post-production in Hollywood? Well, I mean, I meet a lot of different people, um, either through recommendations, um, you know, folks that sort of hear about people that are interested in post and, you know, are curious to talk to people, people that are, because I participate in, um, you know, a lot of ACE programs, ACE programs, you know, they may be people that are further along in their careers, like their experienced assistants or, um, they're even sort of, you know, editors that are starting out and, you know, in, maybe trying to branch into a different genre or, you know, move from television to features or, or vice versa. 
So there's a quite a variety of people that I meet. And for me, like, I think, A, I just feel like it's so important for me to give back because people are so generous with me, you know, as I was coming up, like, not just in terms of advice, but in terms of like, opportunity, like Stephen Marioni, like who was my, my first mentor when I came here, you know, uh, we didn't get a chance to work together until much later, but he's the one who hired me as an assistant, you know, one of the many assistants on Hunger Games. It was because of the VFX um, assisting work that I did on um, Hunger Games, you know, under an amazing VFX editor named Chris Cap, who's now an editor in his own right, um, that I got uh, the gig on Zero Dark Thirty. And through Zero Dark Thirty, you know, got to meet Catherine um, Bigelow and, and Billy Goldenberg. And, you know, years later, ultimately got to work with them on Detroit. And so, like, there's ways in which, like, editors have kind of opened doors to connections and networking and things like that that have been so invaluable. And so, you know, I, you know, I just experience this constant state of gratitude. Like, you know, my friends, not sort of ha- not having lived the life that I live, my friends and colleagues and my agent, things like that, things like that. Like they say, like when I get a job, they're like, oh, it's because you've worked so hard or, oh, it's because, you know, you work so hard at the jobs that you do or you're, you're, you're nice or you're articulate or, or you know, any of those things. Like, and what I always want to say to them is like, no, like you don't understand how much people have helped me like at every step of the way. Like how, like, there's no way that I could take credit for, you know, for this being in this particular position. Right. And I think it's really important to have that, that awareness that it's not about you, that it's about this kind of, again, this economy of like generosity that you find yourself in. And so For me, I think it would be a gross injustice if I didn't participate in that. And so I almost always say yes, if I can fit them in. And particularly during COVID, one of the blessings of the pandemic has been, since I haven't been working, having a lot of time to talk to people. And so I guess when I, the way I approach it usually is to first assess where they are in their career, because I think the kind of advice that you, that is most actionable and applicable is going to be really different than if somebody is at the very beginning of the process versus somebody who's like, you know, wherever they are in each stage. And I feel really blessed that I kind of came up from the bottom. And so I have a visceral experience of pretty much every stage. And also I feel really blessed that I've worked in both television and film so I can speak you know, to the distinctions between those two things. And I've worked in almost every sort of assistant position from apprentice to second to first to VFX editor, like, you know, to, to all those things. So there's a wide variety of things that I could speak to, but I don't want to overwhelm people with advice that they can't act on right away, you know, within the coming year. And so the first thing I do is I try to assess where they are and what would be most useful. Um, And then, you know, and then I try to, in addition to more practical advice, I try to speak to some of the things that you and I just talked about, which is about character and about networking and about resilience and about like perspective and stuff like that, that kind of gives them a sense of like, hey, here's the sort of like soft skills, the harder to sort of like quantify skills that I think are important for you to work on if you're going to sustain 
And, but I also, at, at the end, you know, one of the things I try to do is to try to convey joy too, which is to say like, you know, I'm really lucky, but it's been worth it. You know, that choice I made, that risk that I took at the age of 30 to completely disassemble my life and to start over somewhere else because, you know, it, it led to my sort of every day doing something that I love. It was really worth it. So I want to sort of end with joy in a way and hope to give them sort of motivation to kind of, you know, suffer through the beginning stages in which like it's so much harder to know where you stand and if this is the right decision. So, yeah, that's generally my approach. Well, I mean, speaking of having time during this pandemic, I mean, you created your own online mentoring platform called uh, Sidetime Film. Uh, could you talk to us more about it, what it is and just kind of how it came to be? Sure. Um, well, it was primarily the brainchild of uh, my business partner, Robert Chang, who's a, cr a serial entrepreneur. And he's the sort of, uh, he's the CEO of this site, but he and I have been friends for decades, ever since college. And he's been sort of like very much within that kind of entrepreneurial technology community. And I, I did that through my 20s, but I've been really focused on film. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about was just that there isn't, uh, you know, there isn't an easy way for people who aren't in Los Angeles or New York in one of those film centers to find people who are really working in the industry um, to have conversations with them that could be like really, really important conversations about um, getting started or maybe even in, if they're in the middle of a project, for example, right? Like if you love the way um, the look a DP had on one of their projects, you know, to be able to, you know, how much would it be worth as an up and coming DP to have an hour long conversation with them about some of those technical you know, secrets that they use to achieve that look, right? Or if you're, uh, if you're someone who's an editor in commercials in Chicago or something like that, like, and you really want to switch to more scripted entertainment, you know, how much is it worth to you to have a half hour conversation as a lay of the land of like, is it worth for me to move to New York or LA with an editor who's actually there? And we're like, those conversations are invaluable. And so we, you know, so my role um, for Sidetime Film was to find that sort of initial group of filmmakers, whether they're editors or directors or producers or cinematographers, etc., to sort of be agree to be on the platform. And one of the blessings of quarantine was there's a lot of people who are like waiting for the industry to start up again. So they were it was a much easier way for them to say yes, particularly those people that are usually super busy, right? Uh, and so um, we were, we were, in some ways, COVID was a mixed blessing for us because, you know, it, it, uh, it made it much easier to recruit our sort of initial group of people. And so the role that I played was to be a kind of evangelist for uh, Sidetime Film is to bring people onto the platform and to get them to up and running. And now we've got like, you know, calls happening every day, you know, to a wide variety of people, everybody, everybody, again, from actors, directors, cinematographers, et cetera. And a lot of the folks that are on the platform, because we charge, you know, for the calls, they're not free. Like you have to pay, you know, a, a per minute rate for the calls, right? Um, like a lot of them aren't doing it for um, their own benefit, but a lot of them are, are donating the money that they raise to charity, 
So, so for like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, you know, my calls I'm donating to Ghetto Film School, which is an amazing sort of mentorship program uh, in LA and New York. And uh, so it's, so it's a really wonderful way that if you don't have that network of like being able to reach out to somebody that is a working professional in your trade or what you're interested in, to be able to literally have a one-on-one conversation with that person um, and to be able to schedule it in a way where you, neither party has to reveal their phone number. Uh, and so it's a, it's, it's a really wonderful way to find those I think career changing conversations and making them possible for people. I mean, it's awesome that you have created this, this resource. I mean, and it's, it's awesome. You donate to charity. I mean, it's, it's all great. And uh, yeah, I tell people, you know what it is, it, it is a blessing to be, have all this time. And I think it's, you know, I tell people, um, it, it, there's a moment to network. It is now. And it was, especially during, you know, the, the, the summer because people just had a lot of time on their hands. They were available. I mean, usually we're all working completely. Yeah. And so that's uh, congratulations for putting that together. It's awesome. We're gonna thank you. Uh, thank you'll you. find that at, at, at sidetime.com. We're gonna put all that information in the show notes for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a film you recently edited, Minari, uh, which premiered at this year's uh, Sundance Film Festival. It won the Grand Jury Prize and the uh, Audience Award at Sundance. Congratulations. Thank you. Want to hear more about the film and also your experience editing this project? Sure. Uh, for me, it was like a dream come true. Um, you know, from the moment I got a phone call from the producer, Christina O, um, who has been at Plan B for a while. And I had the privilege of working with Christina on Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, I was one of the editors on that show. And she called me while I was finishing up on Euphoria. And she said, like, you know, I get a lot of Asian American stories in scripts, but this one's really special. And, you know, you're the first person I thought of to work on this because it's a Korean American story. And Christina is Korean American. And, and like, even when I was interviewing for Last Black Man, we really hit it off because we started talking about our childhoods, you know, kind of growing up you know, in predominantly white communities and, you know, what it was like to be immigrants. And then, you know, the, like you and I talked about what it was like to choose a career in film. And so we really bonded over that shared experience. And, uh, and she said that this is a really special film and, and I really want people who get this experience, this Korean American experience to work on it. And so she told me that, you know, in addition to the writer director, Lee Isaac Chung being Korean American, that she was trying to hire Korean American department heads, you know, if possible. And that sounded like a dream to me because very early on when I was in college, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to be a filmmaker was because I was motivated by this like Asian American literature class that I took. Right. And I remember the experience of seeing myself on the page and seeing uh, an Asian American experience on the page and how moving that was for me uh, of like not knowing what I was missing until it happened. Right. Cause you're just so used to sort of like assuming like literature is literature and that you identify with the pro- protagonist and, you know, you honor that experience, but like until you see yourself portrayed, you don't know what you're missing. And so it was a very moving thing for me. And I was like, I really want to do this for other people, but in the medium of film. But I think, you know, that's the thing is like, I think it's hard to do that and to, you know, have something commercially viable just because until very recently, I think, you know, non-mainstream stories 
were not necessarily seen by Hollywood as being, you know, commercially viable. And so I think you, I, I, you know, I, I didn't know when or if that opportunity would ever come around. And so being able to tell such a personal story, one that you know, I think I had almost forgotten that I had hoped to tell, you know, as, as, you know, when I first started out, that was like a dream come true. And in addition to that, um, I think something really special happened um, when uh, we were filming. I was in Los Angeles and they were in Oklahoma filming um, near Tulsa. Uh, the story is set in Arkansas. And I think because it was a lower budget film and because, you know, everybody really needed to come together to make it happen and to make it special. I think there was a real kind of family atmosphere that developed uh, among the crew and the actors and everybody that was involved. They really started to recognize how special a project it was. And I think it, it made some of the, the, the performances and the footage that we were seeing just so gorgeous. And so like, beyond, you know, what you think it would be for the budget level that we were working from. Um, and I think that really speaks to the talents of like our production designer, um, uh, Yong Lee and our uh, cinematographer, Lachlan Milne. And, uh, and, uh, and it just, I started to realize very early on that like, not only is this a very personal, very meaningful story, but that like visually, cinematically, it's a really special story. And then like when you have an incredible composer like uh, Emil Mosseri coming on, he did the score for Last Black Man as well and recently for Kajillionaire. Uh, super, super talented composer just bringing his magic to the project. Like it just felt like this kind of snowball of like people giving their all for the project. And I think that's what you dream about is an experience like that. Um, where you're doing it for the love of the work and not certainly not for the money because like, you know, we all took big pay cuts in order to work on it. Um, so that, and, and then, you know, ultimately to have an audience, particularly an audience that you love at Sundance to really embrace it, even though the majority of people are not Korean American at Sundance. Right. And to sort of see in the specificity of the story of this family kind of universal things that, that they could identify with and their families. Like, you know, I have a, you know, a Latino friend who was like, you know, uh, you know, I used to watch wrestling with my grandmother, you know, back in the day, like, cause that's one of the scenes that you see, you know, in the film, like that it's the specificity that kind of, I think awakes in people, you know, these beautiful memories of like, these small intimate moments that they have with their parents or with their siblings or with their grandparents. And, and I feel like that really resonated for people. Uh, and I, and, and I'm really, really looking forward to um, this movie being seen. I mean, not just for the sake of the movie and, and for, you know, for its renown, but for, I think the kind of gift that it is to remind people of what's really important, you know, what are the relationships that are important and that we often neglect and um, and you know what where you know how how golden it is to sort of like be reminded of these kind of like core relationships in our lives particularly around our family and so that's been super rewarding to 
to have it get out there and do people respond in that way. Why do you think Asian American films have resonated with American audiences? I think, you know, it's a relatively new phenomenon. You know, I, I you know, I, I think until like, for example, Crazy Rich Asians, the previous Hollywood film with Asian leads was like Joy Love Club. And that was like decades before that. So I think it's a relatively recent thing. I think it speaks to, you know, the kind of cultural ascendancy of things like K-pop and, you know, create, you know, the cultural production that's happening in East Asia um, and people being sort of open to it and interested in it in a way that, that, that didn't exist before. Um, and I hope that that continues. because I feel like, I feel like you learn so much about who you are by looking at another culture, you know, like, and I think you can sort of learn something true about humanity and about your own particular life. You know, when you see uh, it sort of like played out in a cult, in a cultural context, that's not familiar to you, you know? So I think, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good thing for everybody. Uh, and hopefully it's, it, it continues in terms of its ability for Asian American artists and actors and, and, um, you know, and, and, and tradespeople and, you know, everybody up and down the line to uh, get more opportunities to tell their stories. Well, speaking of uh, learning about other cultures, how can we promote more diversity in post? I think it, it really comes down to mentoring and hiring. Bottom line, you know, like I think um, if you, if you, if I think it's really important to have it as a goal, obviously you're always looking for excellence, right? But, you know, I think if you have it as a goal to say like, as a community of people in post, we're committed to diversifying our ranks, which I really see, you know, I see that not just in post, but in Hollywood in general. I mean, it's taking time because change always takes time. Right. And there's always resistance and stuff. And, you know, it's understandable, you know, like there's always people with vested interests in one side or the other. Right. I think, and I think they're legitimate interests. Right. So I think, but, but I think if, as if we're committed to it and if we hire people, you know, with that in mind and we keep that, you know, especially as we start to rise in the ranks and with hiring power and with influence over those decisions, that's the best way. And I also think it's really important to be visible. Like if you're a person of color um, and you've reached a certain part in your career where hopefully you can give testimony or to be a model or, or something like that, I think it's important to be visible because I think that when I was coming up, part of the reason I, I never thought of film as a possibility as a realistic possibility is because I didn't know about any Asian American filmmakers. And so like, I think if you don't see, you know, where you could be 20 years from now or 30 years from now, it's hard to sort of see it as a realistic thing. And so I think, I think visibility mentorship and actually making hiring decisions are really important. Awesome, Harry. Well, you know, it was a true pleasure talking with you here today and, and, and just getting to know you. I'm glad uh, we could uh, make this happen. Likewise. Congrats on all your achievements. Congrats on Minari. I hope everyone sees it. And congrats on, uh, you know, Side Time Film. 
It's a great resource. I hope people check it out. It's hightime.com. Uh, and I hope that you and I can go have some Korean barbecue soon okay. yeah. and, and go yeah. for a run. <laughs> We're putting off with a nice little that, run. That sounds like the perfect sequence. Yeah, that sounds great. Or maybe we run first, build up an appetite, and then go to barbecue. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if we go to barbecue, then we'll definitely have to have soju and like... I don't know. Running after season is probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, we're, not, we're not running. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a plan for sure. Uh, thanks again for being here, Harry. Really enjoyed our chat. All right, brother. Great talking. That was editor Harry Yoon sharing some great advice here on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. I can certainly get behind a lot of things he said about advancing our careers in post-production. Uh, I've definitely applied a lot of those principles he mentioned to my own career uh, here in Hollywood. So a big thank you to Harry Yoon. Thanks for listening to episode 13 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Feel free to share this episode with your friends and colleagues and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Got a lot of great things in store for the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program this year, so definitely stay tuned and stay connected with me by signing up for the newsletter at hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, the creator of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program, wishing you an excellent 2021. It's going to be a lot better. Okay.